Welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. You are listening to episode 1537, Building Permaculture Schools in Africa. My guest is Michael Nichols, a farmer and permaculture practitioner from Salt Spring Island, British Columbia, who runs Seven Ravens Permaculture Academy and Eco Forest. When not in Canada, Michael spends much of his time in Africa building schools that focus on teaching permaculture to children and their teachers. This work forms the basis for what you will hear today, though if you're familiar with the normal format of the show, this one is a bit different. Once I started listening to Michael, I got caught up in what he was sharing from his earliest interests and love of nature to his permaculture practices, and then on to the way that he fundraises and works in creating schools throughout a number of East African nations. The way he tells stories, with asides and reconnections back to the main thread, reminded me very much of how my family told stories, and is also the way that I tend to get into things in a somewhat non-linear fashion when I'm not sitting behind a scripted podcast episode. As a result, this is Michael telling his story, with no interruption or break from me until nearly an hour in. So take some time, relax, and listen to how we can all have a greater impact than we might imagine, just by tuning in, getting engaged, and taking action. If you enjoy this episode, visit the Contribute tab at thepermaculturepodcast.com for ways to share this show with the world and help me to keep producing new episodes. Now then, on to Michael Nichols. So I think it all started when I was a very young child. Just I was born in Switzerland. We used to go for great walks in the forest on Saturdays and Sundays, and I just remember walking along these trails and looking at these magnificent trees, and I just felt at one in the forest. So... Uh, then over time we ended up moving to uh, Montreal and then to Toronto and in Toronto we lived in a very urban area with uh, huge apartment buildings and we were living in a townhouse in amongst those apartment buildings and I noticed these magnificent oak trees across the street huge old red oaks and I would go over there and and, uh, stand underneath the trees and then in the fall the acorns would drop and then I'd see the squirrels running around and trying to gather up the acorns for the winter. And it just inspired me watching these creatures running up and working so industriously, trying to get ready for the long, long winter. And as I was sitting outside my, or inside my house and then looking down onto our rock garden there, I noticed these two big boulders and I thought, oh, look at that. I could probably create a little cache in there for the squirrels for for their winter storage. So I went back across the street and gathered up tons of acorns and put them into these rocks. And then in the winter, when it was really cold, I'd put uh, a few of the acorns out onto the rocks. And on some slightly warmer, sunny days, the squirrels would come out and find them. And then I would have just the door open a little bit, a little piece of rock open. Squirrels were able to find the the acorns and so then uh, there was just this fascination with nature and uh, then I kept thinking about the the seeds and you know how all the ones that they buried if um, they couldn't find them again and then I really realized that that's how forest started and so fast forward then into I went to boarding school in England and at that time uh, spent lots of time in the forest there was an incredible forest and behind our school and we had to do lots of cross-country running and stuff but in free time I always ended up in the forest And so I got this incredible fascination for forests. And then going to finishing high school back in Toronto, I was looking for something to do. And somebody suggested that I go to British Columbia and become a chokerman in the forest industry. That's the person who ties up the cables on trees and drags them out of the forest. And as I was flying across the country, a young couple in the back of the plane on a ward air flight said, what are you doing? And I said I was going to be a chokerman. And they said, oh, you can't be involved in cutting down the trees. You've got to be planting them. And so I thought, wow, yes, of course, I should be planting trees. And so then I became a a tree planter. Then as I was doing that, I really got more and more fascinated by trees. And that led to then afterwards going off to Australia and discovering farming. And uh, I worked on lots of farms and I was just realizing how much I loved being in the country. I, I was working with sheep shearing and picking asparagus and fruit and always out in the country and in the sunshine. I just thought, that's it. I, I had never won an office job. I just want to be in nature all the time. This is, this is what I feel comfortable with. 
so I went and enrolled in, at the University of Guelph in Ontario, in southern Ontario. It's an agricultural college. And I went through and I did my degree there in agribusiness. And as I was doing the degree, I just, through the tree planting, I'd met many young people, what one would have called in those days hippies, and they were all into organic food, and organics, organics was the discussion all the time. So I kept on asking about why uh, can't we look into discussing some organic principles and organic farming and be exposed to examples of good organic farmers. But the Institute did not want to talk about that because they were being supported by the larger companies and petrochemical companies and various seed companies, etc. They didn't want to talk about organics and I was threatened actually to be kicked out of the university if I didn't stop talking about organics. So I then pursued by graduating and then looking for jobs and slowly got more and more small-scale jobs, uh, mostly shoveling shit actually, uh, in barns, but you know, just loving being in the country. Then I worked hard at uh, tree planting. I was still a tree planter and then became a chimney sweep and through all that raised money to be able to um, afford to buy a farm. So I drove out west back to British Columbia, which I absolutely loved. And I was living in southern Ontario, just commuting to BC for work all the time. But I uh, decided in 1987 to drive out, late 87, and spent two months looking all over the southern Gulf Islands, Vancouver Island, looking for land. And after 200 property views, I basically had had enough and was going to give up. And I had also been using a crystal for dowsing. Somebody had suggested that was a good way of finding land. So I had a big ordnance survey map and was dowsing with this crystal and it kept on swinging over Salt Spring but nowhere else. And I kept on ignoring it because I thought that Salt Spring was too expensive and uh, yuppieville. So I thought, no, I'm not going to go there. And circumstances happened that I did end up going there through a friend and saw a listing and decided to buy a farm and then I settled on Salt Spring and I continued in the tree planting world and after a couple of years of being on Salt Spring I was having a sauna one evening with a friend Dave Phillips who owns a blasting company and he said so what do you do and I told him about my farm and my inspirations to be a herb farmer growing uh, medicinal and culinary herbs and he said, I was talking about all the other aspects of the forest and everything else in the tree nurseries that I'd started to establish. And then he said, wow, it sounds like you're doing permaculture. And I said, what's permaculture? And he gave me a book, Introduction to Permaculture by Bill Mollison, which I read with great zeal and uh, was really fascinated by all the concepts that I saw. And I thought, wow, I really need to do this. This is great. So I learned lots from that book. And... Just around that time, with my girlfriend at the time, I decided to go to Africa. She had grown up in Africa, and she was wanting to head back to Africa again. So I joined her for the first time in 1990, and we traveled out to Kenya. And after just about, I don't know, one or two weeks of being a tourist and having a look at this country, I just noticed everywhere how there was huge amounts of deforestation and lots of charcoal making from from the forests and the rivers were running red and black and tons of silt from all the erosion because of deforestation and I was shocked and thought I have to do something about this that this country is going to fall apart and at that point I decided that I was going to look into opening up a tree nursery with some local school so as I was down at the coast along the Kenyan coast in a place called Arabuku Sokoki. It's one of the last remnant bits of forest left in Kenya that's uh, associated to the Congolese forest from ancient times. And it's the last little remnant strip, and it has beautiful, huge, incredible trees. And most of it had already been chewed up by agriculture and development. So I thought if I could develop a tree nursery with a local school or local schools, then I could educate some of the kids about the importance of these amazing trees that they had. So we did that and that felt incredible and just would go to each school I went to, I would just ask the principal how they felt about having a tree nursery and if I could spend a bit of time with some of the students and talking about the importance of trees. And that worked out incredibly well and 
then I developed, uh, each year I went back, I developed more and more tree nurseries. And so over the years, with all the nurseries that we've established throughout Kenya, we've grown over 10 million trees at this point. So at that stage, I thought as I was doing this work, I got into seeing that the schools needed food and more than just tree nurseries, they actually needed gardens. So I started developing kind of food forest and permaculture garden with a particular school, but still didn't really have a full grasp. So I thought I really need to educate myself. And so I flew off to Australia and spent two months traveling all over Australia, visiting 50 different permaculture farms. Through that, I really got a, a sense of what people were doing and how it worked in real life context. Then I decided to go back to Kenya and start establishing more schools. And the following year, I went back to Australia, and I, that's where I met Jeff Nugent, and uh, he has a thing called uh, SARI, Sustainable Agriculture Research Institute, and uh, he became my permaculture teacher. And I was so inspired by his place and everybody that I had been traveling in the area of southwestern Australia below Perth, and they all said, oh, have you seen Jeff Nugent? Have you seen Jeff Nugent? So when I met Jeff, I was just, I instantly fell in love with this man. He was so incredibly generous and nice and welcoming and uh, just was inspired and interested in, in every woofer's story, what they had. And when I told him about Kenya and the projects, he was particularly interested. And then I thought, I have to bring permaculture to Salt Spring. So I asked him if he could come and do a course on Salt Spring. So he did, and I think that was in 1997. So I got my PDC at that point in time, and I think we had 10 or 12 other people in the class, and everybody else was super excited about uh, learning what he had to show us. And then it uh, started to change, and when I went back, continuing going back to Kenya, I decided that I wanted to develop more of these schools and basically bring education to schools about uh, food gardens and how to increase food production in the school scenario because I thought if the children could learn that at school, they would take that out to their family farms and then it would help them change their lives and uh, bring more abundance because generally in a lot of Africa, there aren't enough calories and there are a lot of hungry people. I mean, it's good in many places, but in other places, there's just a lack of education about growing food. And it's very monoculture based on maize in a lot of East Africa where I've worked a lot. So I just thought variety is important and sources of income at the farm are important too. So during this entire time, as I was developing more and more, I figured, how do I continue financing this? And I was a chimney sweep at the time still. So I decided each year that I would take a portion of all the funds that I was making from the chimney sweeping and also from the tree planting and finance my projects. And uh, once a year, I had a, a big tree sale, Trees for Africa tree sale. And that was incredible. We would have hundreds of people come here from Salt Spring and Victoria, the closest city on Vancouver Island, and they would come and buy trees. And they just want to talk and ask, you know, why are you doing this and how are you doing this? And is this how you do it all? So I got the odd little contribution on top of the trees, but it was basically the trees that financed the projects. And in Africa, at the same time, I had made an incredible connection with these uh, farmers, uh, Willie and Nick Spotgeeter of uh, Red Shank Farm in um, a place called Salga, which is about 25 kilometers west of uh, Nikuru. And when I got there, my <laughs> girlfriend was um, studying lions and leopards and making an incredible film about these cats in Nikuru National Park. And I was continuing going back and forth to Nairobi and uh, doing tree planting projects and doing some landscaping and doing more projects with schools. And when I was hitchhiking one day, somebody said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm an organic farmer from Canada and I'm doing all these tree nurseries. And the fellow said, oh, you have to come and visit us on our farm next year when you come back because we don't know anything about organic farming and we really want to get into organic farming. So I brought a couple of my interns. I've had interns here for probably the last 20 years. And I brought a couple of interns with me and asked them if they'd like to set up the gardens. And they said, yes, absolutely. We'd love to do that. And we'll spend two months here and we'll, we'll organize it all. And as usual, every time I arrived in Kenya, the first thing I do is go to the Kenya Seed Center and buy seeds. And they have, I don't know, maybe 
four or five hundred different types of seeds, exotics and indigenous trees. So I just look and uh, study the book and what each tree did. And so I always had bags of seeds with me according to the climate of where I was traveling in Kenya, because Kenya has many climatic zones, so you really have to be very specific with your seeds. So I established a small tree nursery at this garden as well, where my interns were developing the organic garden. And I had lots of seeds left over, and somebody said, oh, there's a crazy white woman at the end of the farm there. You should talk to her. Maybe she's interested. So I went to visit this woman, Nix, and asked her about trees, and she said, oh, you have to come and look at my trees. And then <laughs> we, uh, I walked along with her along the riverbank, and she showed me, I don't know, 10 or 15 trees that she just planted, some indigenous trees, and uh, she was so thrilled with them. And a lot of erosion had happened on the riverbank, so she was telling me how this was going to help with the erosion in the future. And I said, well, I happen to have all these indigenous and exotic tree seeds in my bags. Can I set up a small little nursery? at your place and she said sure that that would be great and so um, I got a small little plot of land in a greenhouse and they were growing flowers for seed production and they were exporting the seeds all over the world and they had at the time maybe 50 employees or something like that and they were cross-pollinating all these seeds for new varieties all by hand paint brushing being the humans were the bees and with paint brushes with painting flowers and collecting pollen and then mixing them So I had uh, the opportunity to put uh, a tree nursery in one of their greenhouses and just a small space about eight feet by three feet wide. And I said, I'll be back in two months. And so I came back and all these trees had grown. And so we potted them up and then we started planting them along the river. And she was super excited. And just two or three days before I arrived there, there was an El Nino flood and uh, it had washed, I don't know, a hundred dump truck loads of silt onto the banks on their land. And uh, Willie, the farmer there, said, oh, look at this disaster. And I said, disaster? Wow, that's an opportunity. This is incredible. Look, look, we could set up this huge tree nursery here. And I think that they were so inspired seeing these little trees growing in their nursery, they thought, why not? Why not let this guy have a little chunk of land here and let him grow a few trees? If that keeps him happy, <laughs> let him do it. So then I went back to Nairobi and got tons more seeds and seed bags and we started filling them and filling up all the silt and it was just perfect mix of the right materials to, to grow trees and it was quite nutrient rich so we filled up bags and planted these seeds and then I don't know within a year we'd grown uh, or maybe slightly over a year we'd grown about a million trees out of that one area and exported them all over the entire uh, region people were coming hearing about this new big tree nursery and People were coming to buy trees, so they went out to all these farms, and then I was training some young fellows, some nurserymen, about how to maintain a nursery and take care of trees, and then I asked them one day, do you guys have your own tree nurseries? And they said, no. And I said, why not? You're so far away from here that you should be growing trees and selling them too. So I got them all seeds, and then we went out to all of their places and set up tree nurseries. So the the tree thing was the real foundation, and as we were growing these uh, trees at the nursery, we were also starting to plant up on the land. And if you go there now, it's um, expanded beyond that initial 20 acres to another parcel that's, I think, about 50 acres. So on the farm itself, they're renting a small piece on a larger farm, and many parcels of the farm have now been planted up with these trees. And it's just gorgeous. There's these huge trees outside the, the fenced area. It's all open kind of savanna land for cow grazing and for monoculture corn production. And on the inside, there's this incredible oasis of a permaculture project. And uh, over the years, it's just developed and developed and developed. Willie and Nick are just very keen permaculturalists now, and I'd always discuss new ideas. We could do this, we could do that. And then they'd say, sure, let's do that. And um, it uh, it's now... To the point where you know there's these huge trees for windbreaks, there's medicinal trees, there's fruit trees, there's nut trees, there's uh, the tree nursery. All the greenhouses collect water off the roofs and direct them to four large ponds, all filled with tilapia, and that's all just from the rainwater that comes through. Then the greenhouse expansion has gone to the point of 32 uh, greenhouses, actually built with a lot of timbers that we've grown 
on the land in the last 15 years, or I started in 1997, so that's seven, uh, 18 years now. So 32 greenhouses are employing now 350 people. Then between the trees and the greenhouses, there's grass, so people can sit there for lunch or in the shade under these trees. And then Willie was always employing people to cut the grass with slashers. They're just blades, like a scythe, I guess. And I said, why don't we have sheep doing that? You know, then, then we can get the manure, and then you can put that into your flower mix or potting soil in the greenhouses, and uh, then you'll have a healthier soil. And in the beginning, he was very chemical-oriented and also lots of spraying because of disease in the greenhouses. Now they have integrated pest management and uh, they have uh, no more chemicals in the greenhouses, no more fertilizers. The two sheep that I bought, Willie, have now expanded to a constant flock of uh, 60 to 80 sheep that go around the whole property and mow. Then he collects all the manure and compost and composts and then he takes the, some extra manure and he has worm bins that he basically uh, has all these huge, huge worm bins about uh, six foot in diameter under a slightly plastic shed roof. And then every time he waters them, then he collects the worm juice off that. And then basically all the greenhouses are now fertilized with worm juice and with um, sheep manure. So things have really changed on that front. And coming out from that farm, the entire area, when the first time I went into that valley, um, I drove over the hill and there was just this huge, big, open savanna land with a couple of trees dotted around and just very eroded, wind-blown area and uh, tons of dust. Now you drive into the area and there are just so many trees everywhere. Everywhere you look, it's just trees, trees, trees. And around all the buildings, there's trees, and there's a lot more greenhouses now, too. A lot of them are growing flowers for export, just the flower itself, like roses. But there is a huge horticultural industry developed there, and forestry is everywhere. And as we were doing this work, I just thought I should do more work with the local schools. So we developed small food gardens and permaculture gardens and tree nurseries with the local schools. And I think, I can't remember which year, it was probably 2002, I did a project uh, with a farmer because somebody had suggested I do, you know, that I was doing this great project at this white farm, but why don't I do more projects with local people? So I developed a project and it was, a, it was called the Salga uh, Educational Food Garden. And we took a two-acre piece of land and developed it into a permaculture garden for local education purposes and I made a deal with the farmer that I would do all the work with a crew and for that he would get 50% of all the food grown then he should take uh, 20% and hire a farmer and 20% of all the food grown should be given to AIDS sufferers and 10% of the food uh, would be sold for reinvesting into buying more seeds and things like that and more inputs into the farm. So that worked incredibly well, and even the United Nations was coming all the way from Nairobi, 250 kilometers away. They were driving there to pick up bags and bags and bags of food and take them out to some surrounding areas that were even 100 kilometers further from there that were so desperately poor and uh, huge AIDS outbreaks, and they would just bring food to some nutritious food. And a lot of kale, actually, is one of their staples, and uh, all organically grown. And everybody was saying how much better they felt and uh, so with that I was really inspired. Unfortunately that year I also ate pork which I never do. I was invited uh, as a celebration of thanks and ate some pork which was uncooked which then led to me getting some internal uh, parasites and then I had to actually have an operation to remove some of my colon because of parasite damage. So that was, um, I took a year off and was on Salt Spring, and uh, I got a call one day from the University of Guelph from a professor who wanted to meet me and talk about agriculture in Kenya and permaculture. And so I went to meet this uh, professor. Her name is Kate Dewey, and uh, an incredible um, animal uh, husbandry professor, and she really studied these uh, pigs. is her speciality. So she was out in Kenya looking at all these different farms and they were uh, there was so much poverty in this one area and they were trying to research why are people getting all these diseases that are related to pigs and um, what it came to was that basically 
there are there were a lot of very very poor uneducated people people were defecating in the bush everywhere the pigs were coming along and eating that then people would butcher the pigs and cook the meat and then not cook it long enough and kill the parasites that had actually gotten into the meat and so then there, the next cycle was then uh, a cycle that got into the humans back again and it affected, caused epilepsy and uh, brain damage and uh, all kinds of different diseases. And so she was studying these diseases that humans were getting and trying to understand how can we change this. And um, she came up with the idea of thinking that, okay, well, part of it is poverty. So and when um, she asked the farmers, how much do you get for your pigs? They were telling her numbers that she was thinking, you're getting totally ripped off. You, you can't possibly live off that amount of money. So they studied, I think, 5,000 pigs and they did uh, snout to tail measurements and then belly girth measurements of 5,000 pigs and worked out an equation amongst all of those pigs to figure out an average weight because all these farmers didn't actually have scales to weigh their pigs. So when they took them to the butcher, the butcher would say, yep, that's a 15 kilogram pig and I'll give you this much money for it. They had no idea as to you know, what the actual weight was and they just had to take the butcher's word for it. Then they would never get the money that they were supposed to. She figured, okay, uh, now you can take any pig and be within, I think, uh, a two, two kilogram of the true weight so that farmers would actually have a much better idea of what the real value of the pigs was. Anyway, through all this, uh, she saw grandmothers at houses with 10 children sitting around, and every farm she went to was basically the same scenario, and she said, what are all these kids doing? Why aren't they at school? Oh, well, we don't have money for school. Uh, but I thought education was free now. Well, it is, but you need to have a school uniform to go to school. Well, how much is a school uniform? Uh, $7 per school uniform, and we just can't afford that. We have no money. And so she thought, this is ridiculous. I've got to figure out a way to get some money together to get these kids to school. So she ended up raising money through speaking at churches and raised enough money to buy lots of school uniforms and getting kids to school. So all the, the enrollment went up dramatically, and then she went back to the school and visited and just sat in some classes and saw that so many kids were just sitting there, just staring into blank space. And she thought, why aren't they interested? And she realized that through pure hunger, they were just, they had no uh, concentration level anymore. So she thought, okay, I'm going to set up a, a feeding program here and then we'll feed the kids. We'll provide them with uniforms, we'll feed the kids, enrollment will go up and you know, these kids will benefit from all that. And over time, the enrollment went up from three, I think when she started, there was less than 300 in the school, and then it was 700 suddenly. And then she had this feeding program, and it just got to be too expensive. And then she decided, okay, I'm going to buy some land, and we're going to grow the food for these kids. And that's where I came in, and she asked, she'd heard about me. Actually, her son was an intern at my place just uh, by chance, and um so we had a long discussion, and uh, she said, I want to hire you to go out to Kenya and open up a permaculture educational project at this primary school in western Kenya. So I did that, and uh, it was incredibly successful. And with the kids, over a month period, we uh, carved out eight acres of land all by hand with uh, what a tool called a djembe, which is similar to a hoe, and uh, hand dug all these fields, plowed them all by hand, and put in these huge swales for water catchment, and then we put on the main road, which is just a small little track really, put um, sleeping policemen, uh, what are they called, speed bumps, and that would divert the water as the water was rushing down the road. It would divert the water into the first swale, and then from the first swale it would overflow to the second and so on and so forth. And I think the hill that we were doing it on the eight acres, it was quite a narrow strip, and it was probably about... Uh, seven or eight hundred meters um, down to the the end of the field and after we'd finished the whole project one day it just there was a huge downpour and we were in a meeting and I ran out of the classroom and said I have to I'll, I have to check out the water so I went running running down the hill and after 45 minutes after the storm had finished and it was totally blue skies then uh, some of the other teachers came down and said what are you doing and I said I'm just sitting here waiting for the for the water to fill up my pond. And they said, wet water. It rained, it stopped raining a long time ago. I said, yeah, I know. 
but it's going from the swales and it'll go from the swale to the swale to the swale to the swale and it'll irrigate all of those eight acres and then the overflow will come down into this uh, pond here. And they just sat and shaking their heads and thinking, you're nuts, that's not going to happen. And suddenly, out of nowhere, this raging river of water came through and just filled up this pond and uh, the young fellow, uh, Kate's son, Peter, just... Uh, stripped down to his underwear and jumped in the pond and went swimming and it was everybody was just so thrilled and in total disbelief of what was happening so that was such a fantastic moment because it had been all just hard work sweat blood and tears and everyone thought this crazy white man we're doing all this work uh, with him and why are we doing this anyway and then they kind of got the picture and um, within two months there was enough food being grown on that land to feed every single child in the school then there was even tons of excess which they were selling and and they were buying school uniforms and they were buying uh, athletic uniforms and then they created an athletic team they'd never had an athletic team before and then they uh, competed and they won first prize and that school went from 64th place out of 64 schools in the district to first within the the next year and you could really see what food and what inspiration and what working together, how that motivated the school. So she said, we've got to do a second school. And so she found another school and we did that and that went, out, that went well as well. And then we were coming to the third school and she said, choose another school, which I found. And I was going to develop um, that one the following year. And then she called me up in February and said, you know what, Michael, we're not going to Africa this year because there's no money. And I said, but I've already committed to these people. I'll just, I'll just take over, and I'll, I'll, I'll make it happen. So then I started fundraising, and we raised enough funds to be able to do that project. And then there was a, a bit of a separation between Kate and I at that point because I really felt it was important that when we set up these permaculture projects that we stop all extra funding for any food programs that the school would only be and the the students and the uh, staff and the school administration would be really motivated to continue feeding the kids but if there was additional money coming in all the time then they wouldn't be as motivated and there was no more money anyway because of the financial crisis in North America and there was she couldn't raise any more money so I said from now on I think what I'd like to do is just have no more feeding program and just make it an internal thing and so then I continued developing more schools and uh, she kept uh, supporting one of the first schools which unfortunately experienced some corruption that, uh, and then the program started to fall apart a little bit but that's the one, one thing in Africa that's extremely um, difficult to deal with is the level of corruption and it hasn't been really that bad at, at most of the places I've worked at but it, it can happen and it can get out of control pretty quickly. Anyway, we, we then continued doing seven more of these schools and seven for seven ravens. I thought that would be a great number. And then I'll be done with that project and then I'll get on to something else. But uh, once seven schools had been done, basically I thought, you know what? I could do maybe another 30 in my life, but why not do 3,000 and really bring permaculture into, into East Africa? So I thought, how am I going to do that? And then I thought, the best way is instead of me teaching at an individual school and spending two weeks and converting with the staff and children of each school their, their property into this incredible permaculture farm, I'll just give a small description. So at these schools, what we did as well is uh, we would try to set up food gardens, so gardens, formal gardens to grow food, plus fruit, we would fence the whole property. We would um, weave kai apples in between the fencing there. The only thing we could afford was basically barbed wire. So we would, uh, we would climb up a fig tree and carefully prune a fig tree, grab the branches, stick them into the ground. Those branches stuck into the ground would actually start to grow and uh, become uh, new fig trees and hold the, the fence together. And then the, we would plant kai apple trees at about um, 8 to 10 inch spacing underneath the fence. And as they're growing, we would weave them through the fence. So that would hold the fence together. That would create this great big barricade, which also prevented people coming into the schoolyard to steal food and also animals from coming into the schoolyard. Then the whole compound would be planted up in, into woodlots for timber production so that within a few years they would actually have trees big enough to cut to make timbers to 
grow or to build another classroom so we would grow all the wood for the classrooms on the land food trees everywhere as as many as possible all around the football pitch very dense forest so that uh, the parents and and all the students watching football games which is a great activity there uh, that soccer I'm talking about would be um, all be able to be sitting in the shade and in a comfortable scenario. Then every school would get uh, lots of swales and fish ponds, and then there, there would be uh, fish, and then we would have a tree nursery right beside the fish pond, so there'd be some uh, nutrient-rich water to water all the trees, and then they would sell the trees for extra income for the school just to you know buy supplies and hand out uniforms and so there was a each project was not only self-feeding but also uh, extra cash generating for uh, extra projects that they wanted to do on the land so that was the model and it worked really well then I thought okay now we need to have 3,000 of these that I'd like to develop and so I figured if I set up teacher training colleges in each country then I would be able to have 10 classes of two-week permaculture uh, PVC courses a year. That's 20 weeks of the year. We would build a dormitory that would house 20 people, uh, classroom, composting toilets, uh, shower houses, a little barn for animals, and then the water diversion project. So each place now has uh, rainwater just coming down the road with the deflection with a bund uh, or a um, speed bump back into the property and all that would then be the water for the entire project. So we've done this now in Kenya and Uganda and each country that we're doing we thought it would be interesting to have a different speciality that that school would, would do. So the Kenyan school is how a family farm can be completely self-sufficient on half an acre and this happens to be the whole school is on half an acre and we've got three fish ponds with a total volume of about 700,000 liters of water storage on in those fish ponds those ponds they grow 5,000 fish a year as the water comes off the road and goes into a sill trap before the first pond then fills up the first pond goes down to the second pond when it gets to the second pond it actually has such a high back wall that it back floods all the land and then flood irrigates all the food gardens above it which are all slightly raised beds and keyhole designs with pathways but the water trickles down all the pathways and then flood irrigates all these raised beds and then at that point it then goes over and goes through to the next uh, fish pond and I've got to give full credit to uh, Javin Bernakovic. He's, he has permaculture BC and he is a teacher that teaches uh, with us here at uh, our institute. We've got an institute called Southern Ravens Permaculture Institute and Ecoforestry and um, uh, he teaches with us and one year I asked him to come to Africa and uh, he was thrilled to come and he designed the whole fish pond system. It, it, incredible. So then the last pond is actually on s several steps that go all the way down to this very deep hole. And so there's different levels at which the fish can hang out. And also all these little terraces within the pond are places where we can put potted plants that, or even put a little bit of soil and then have aquatic plants to reduce the evaporation. So that's that one. That's in Kenya. And that's run by JB. And JB is my right-hand man in Kenya and he is actually a school teacher from the very first school and uh, he was very he didn't really think that any of this permaculture would work and he was there on that day that the pond filled up with all the water so he got converted at that moment and he's also a preacher man and so uh, now he's preaching permaculture throughout East Africa and he's helping us develop each each school and uh, he's always there on site and he's just gone out now to Zanzibar to look at the next uh, school that we're setting up in Tanzania this, this year just to make sure that everything's okay before my students arrive. And each year I take uh, six to eight students and we head out to East Africa and those students together with local people and interested group, community members and uh, also other school children in the closest school, we all collectively work together to create these permaculture teacher training centers. The Ugandan one that we did last year was specializing in teaching permaculture to women because it ended up that we built that one at a school called the House of Joy, which is about 30 kilometers northeast of Kampala. And 
at that school, they take in child brides and uh, street girls, and a lot of these girls are as young as five years old, and they're being married off at that age already. And this Welsh couple has decided to help these girls who are destitute and uh, give them a full education up until the end of primary school, which I guess they're about 14 at that stage. And then I thought, what are they going to do afterwards? Why don't we empower these women then to become permaculture teachers? And then we can uh, spread permaculture that way. And then these girls will have a meaningful, wonderful work for the, the rest of their lives. And you know, then they don't just have to, then they won't just go off and get pregnant or get married, or they'll actually be able to develop something that's really meaningful for them. So we built one there last year, and that went incredibly well. And uh, we started off just with one acre as a demonstration garden and then built the dormitory again and the, all the other facilities, the classroom and all that. But that school has now, they have 10 acres, and apparently all 10 acres are now into permaculture. So each of these schools really are so inspiring to the local people, and it brings people are coming in from hundreds of kilometers away in, in each of the countries and having a look. And the idea is that each year, 200 primary school teachers from all over the country will go through that school and be taught, and they will then take that expertise back to their schools and then educate all their students. And through this process, we're looking at an education of 2.1 million children if all the numbers go through by 2018. So within the next three years, we should have that many, hopefully that many students will have been exposed to permaculture. And I think the, the reason I got so inspired to want to do this is that after I think about the third or fourth school that I'd done in Kenya, I had a filmmaker come with me, Kai Fox from Salt Spring Island. And he said, Michael, have you ever followed up with any of these young students that have gone through when you set up these permaculture projects at the schools? Have you followed them to their homes to see what they've done? And I said, no, I'm sorry to say I haven't. I haven't had time. I'm so focused on the projects. He said, well, let me do that for you tomorrow. So he went out and filmed. He just chose three random kids at the school and said, can I come to your homes and show me what you've done with permaculture? And he came back that night and said, Michael, you have no idea of what's happening out there, do you? And I said, not really. And he said, well, I've got to, you've got to come with me tomorrow. And so he took me to these three different boys' farms and showed me, and each of these kids had gone home after doing a project at the school and saying, Mom and Dad, there was this crazy white man, and he told us all about you know, this thing called permaculture and Anyway, it's, it's working, and you should come to the school and have a look, and we should do that on our farm because it makes a lot more sense than what we're doing. So as I went to these farms, I, was, I, just, I burst into tears. I, I just couldn't believe what I saw because they had converted these farms and, you know, between sort of five to seven-acre farms. And uh, this one example I'll just tell you about uh, Kennedy's farm. And Kennedy had their family farm on five acres. They were making about 200 U.S. dollars a year for that entire year from farm income. I mean, they were feeding themselves, but that was the additional income. Now, they, there's probably 10 kids at that farm, and everybody's in rags. I mean, really ripped up clothes, and the buildings were disheveled, and just a real sense of apathy in, in, the, in their little community at that family farm. And once he brought this in, he said, we have to work really hard as a family and we're going to develop this land. And then they, everybody in Kenya grows maize in East Africa. Generally, maize is the big crop. And they were growing maize and maybe a couple of tomatoes and a couple of uh, squash. While a year later, they were growing 40 different types of vegetables, all of which the boy was then on Saturdays taking off to the, lo or Sundays, the markets on Sundays, he was taking off to the local market and selling. He'd set up a tree nursery producing 50,000 trees twice a year, so 100,000 trees a year. The family farm income had gone from $200 to 20000 in the first year. And all of the land that he was working on, he had swaled the entire thing to be collecting water and then terracing and then making sure there's no erosion. And then the excess runoff went down the road and into a big, big holding pond which was a silt trap, and from there then it went off to what was a very eroded valley, and then he and his father built a levee across part of this valley, and um, it was just a ravine, and then they put, uh, they, they made this huge 10-foot wall, about four feet thick of sand that they just slowly built up there, 
And then he said, that's where we should have our fish pond. Well, now they're raising two crops of 20,000 or 10,000 fish twice a year uh, in there. And um, then said, well, the fish, they need more oxygen. Even though they're tilapia and they can live in stagnant water, oxygen would be a good thing. So he walked around the village and eventually he found an old piece of uh, four-inch plastic piping and drilled all these holes into it with just a red-hot poker from the fire because they don't have drills. And that created a bit of a sort of aerator. And as it took water from the settling pond where the silt was to go into the second pond because you didn't want any of the silt there, it also oxygenated the water because it was pulling in air and then bringing it in through the water. And then there was all this bubbly water coming into the second pond. And we went there, and the father had just some chicken food and was throwing it out to the fish. And <laughs> they were jumping all over the place. It was, it was just such an incredible sight to see. Anyway, I was so blown away. When I was leaving, they uh, took me over to their hut and uh, the mother gave me a rooster as a present and they loaded us literally with four or five bags of food, each one weighing about 60 kilograms. It's over 100 pounds of food. Uh, squashes, potatoes, uh, sweet potatoes, plantains, bananas, all kinds of fruits and vegetables. And, and then the rooster, and I said uh, to JB at the time, I said, JB, I can't take the rooster. He said, you take that rooster, you have to. This is our culture, and this is a gift, and this is the most important thing. This is, this is more than being given a cow. Like, the rooster is the ultimate gift, and it would be a total disgrace if you said no. So I took the rooster, we ate it for dinner that night with, with all the students, and it just it was a life-changing moment of realizing how, you know, you go and you think you want to just inspire a few kids at school and maybe they'll pick up a couple of things, but to see what these guys had done. And then we started following more kids to schools and found similar examples at many, many schools and just an incredible brilliance. Oh, there's another bit of that story. Uh, on, so this big fish pond, after the very first heavy, heavy rain where sometimes they can get three inches in an hour, of rain, there was a flood, and the water raised so quickly in the second in the fish pond that it overflowed and the fish escaped. And so Kennedy, undeterred, just went immediately to all the neighbors and uh, said to every neighbor, you know, he went to hundreds of people and said, "Does anybody have any old mosquito nets that they can donate to me?" And then he fixed all these mosquito nets and wove them into a fence, and then uh, planted them into the into this uh, levee. So then the next time that happened, the water rose and then uh, the water escaped and the fish stayed in because of the mosquito net fence. So, you know, what really inspires me is how brilliant people can be. Uh, a good friend of mine has this expression, it's called desperate brilliance. And it really is, you know, when you have nothing, how you can make so much out of nothing. And this is really what I saw in that particular case with Kennedy and with, with all these other kids who had been growing these amazing gardens, just inspired from two weeks of a couple of white people coming there and, and setting up an example. Anyway, the school systems have done well, and now these other schools are doing well. Our very first school in Kenya has achieved its goal of the 200. We had 226 students and their teachers in the very first year. Not all of them were teachers. I think about 180 were teachers, but we're we're trying to uh, get those numbers up, and that's I'm hoping we're going to achieve our goal. I think what is happening this year is I'm going to meet with the Minister of Education in Kenya and see if we can figure out a way that the Kenyan government can support financially all of these teachers going to the school because the results that happen at school will help the country on an academic level. It'll create more brilliant people because they'll have food and education will improve and it will improve the entire economy of the country as well because there's all of these kids, if there's two million kids in East Africa knowing about permaculture, well the spillover effect is each kid knows at least 10 more people, well then you're starting to affect you know 20 million people and so I, I think that these permaculture schools are going to have an incredible effect on East Africa and I'm thinking now already now we're at stage three with this uh, school happening this year in Zanzibar and I only have two more after that one in Ethiopia which is 
going to focus on uh, seed diversity and preservation because uh, larger companies, um, chemical uh, and seed companies, are in a lot of these countries and they're making deals with farmers that are not very good for anybody and then it's all genetically modified stuff. And so I'm really hoping to spread the knowledge of the importance of open pollinated seeds. Dan Jason from Salt Spring Seeds has really inspired me with that and so uh, I want to continue trying to do that and he actually was out there in Ethiopia years ago when they there was a famine and they were having a big seed conference there I think this is 25 years ago and he said at the time that there was so much starvation in the country that they were going into the seed bank houses and pulling out that seed and eating the seed as a cereal because there was no more food left in the country and uh, he just saw how you know seed diversity can be lost so quickly in a crisis situation so he has spent his, his last 25 years in creating as much sea uh, diversity as possible because we all know the threats that the larger companies are posing on agriculture worldwide. So that's the focus on the uh, Ethiopian school, and then the last school will be in Malawi. And uh, the focus on that one will be how do we farm responsibly as permaculturalists, as farmers? How do we teach people about permaculture farming where there is no nutrient-rich effluent and erosion going back into lakes because Lake Malawi is one of the larger lakes in the world and it's suffering dramatically as all lakes are everywhere in the world. All lakes are starting to get killed off through eutrophication, um, over-eutrophication of the water from agricultural runoff, from sewage, from whatever sources of nitrogen and phosphates are going into that water. So that's the model that we want to build there. And uh, the Tanzanian school this year, we were going to do it actually on the slopes of Mount Meru, and it was going to be a grassland restoration project because two-thirds of the world is in grasslands, and so I thought it would be really important to address grassland issues and look at how can we get those grasslands sequestering CO2 again and reinvigorating them because a lot of those grasslands have turned into deserts. And then I saw all this work that Alan Savory from, I believe he's from Zimbabwe, has done. And uh, I just was so inspired by that and how you can actually bring animals back into systems and that the animals will actually bring the grasses back. And through very, very intensive numbers of animals in areas for short periods of time until they've eaten all the grass and fertilized the entire field, and then you move them on and you don't let them back in there again until the grass is up again. So we were going to do that there, but uh, there's been a lot of skirmishes on the, uh, in that area with the Maasai and gunfire exchange. So I just uh, knew it was not uh, appropriate for uh, me to bring my students there. So we've relocated it to Zanzibar, and this is uh, a fun story. The fellow we met last year in Zanzibar, his name is Franco Green, he's a permaculturalist there he, that we were going to do the project with. I went to see him and then I went to Zanzibar just to look at the opportunities of maybe doing a project in Zanzibar and um, on my way leaving from Zanzibar, I spoke to this woman on the plane and asked her what she was doing and she said she was a developer and she wanted to develop this low-income town. So I said, have you thought about permaculture and that perhaps you can develop this whole town on permaculture principles? And she said, no, never heard of it. And I said, well, you've got to connect with Franco Green, and he's your man, and he should come here and, and give you some inspiration about what you could do. And I just gave her some examples, and she was pretty inspired. Anyway, the gunfire started happening in Franco's neighborhood. He decided that he was in a, in a position he didn't really want to be in and, and felt uh, a bit threatened there. So... The next day, out of the blue, this woman calls him up, Renata calls him up and says, Franco, I'd like you to come to Zanzibar. I want to interview you for a job opportunity. And now he's got a five-year job offer to help develop this town all under permaculture principles. And it's going to be a 15,000-person town for low-income housing. And we want to set it up as becoming, we, Franco and I have talked a lot about it since, and we want to set it up as a closed-loop town, so basically meaning that there's no inputs have to come into the town because we'll have solar panels producing the electricity, so no electricity, no hookup to water because it's all going to be rainwater harvesting into large tanks. Excess will go into the largest storage tanks on the property. Then there's going to be the manure that's collected is going to be turned into methane, which will then provide gas for cooking in a lot of the houses. 
the entire development is going to be planted up into the forest and amongst the houses that will produce timbers for more project infrastructure in the future because trees grow so fast there. You can grow a tree from uh, seed to harvest in seven years and into a sizable log. So some of that will be for uh, construction material, some of it will be for firewood because there will still probably be a need for some cooking wood. They make charcoal there. We'll take the excess water, run it off into fish ponds, and then have aquaculture there, then large gardens as well to grow food there. And so in this town, theoretically, there, there won't have to be anything coming in because everything will be from within. And then it goes right down to the ocean, and at the ocean there, there's uh, a big mangrove forest, which has been very, very heavily pilfered. And so we want to fix that up and, and improve that and make that into a really strong forest again to, to protect the coastline and then encourage all the fish habitat right at the coast because that's where all the young fish start to develop. These are some of the things that are happening this year. And yeah, now I'm already thinking of the phase after the final school is finished, which will be in 2017. We'll finish that last school. And then I thought, well, I can't stop with just East Africa. I've got to do all of Africa. But I don't want to do all of Africa. It's, it's going to be overwhelming for me. So of all the schools, we'll take the best 10 students from each school and then get them together and say, how would you redesign this program? How has it worked? How has it failed? What would you do to improve it? How are we going to encourage you to carry this on and then develop the next project in Zimbabwe and Zambia and Congo and in uh, all West Africa? And my plan is that over the next probably 10 years, I want to see the rest of all of Africa end up having a permaculture teacher training center so that permaculture training can go out to basically every school child in all of Africa over the next, whatever, 15 years. Then I think we'll have had a serious impact on really the, the richest potential agricultural continent on the planet. Africa has so much potential and there's so little being realized there because of lack of education predominantly and apathy. And apathy has come from well, not enough food in the belly and no chance of employment. And so if everyone's into permaculture, I mean, they could be exporting food all over the world. They could also be making such better incomes than they are. And just a, a little example of how this ties together is as these days for trying to raise money for these projects, I've been trying in the past to raise about $100,000 a year to develop one of these schools, which is peanuts, really, to develop an entire school, which will have that much impact. And well, I tried initially for 75. When I was asking for 75, I was making about 60 to put towards these schools. And that was just not quite enough to really do what I wanted to do. I mean, we were able to successfully complete the project, but there were, there were details that weren't as good as they could have been. So I thought, let's try to raise more. And then I thought, if I ask for 150, maybe I'll make 100. And so that's where we're at now, where um, I'm asking for 150 a year now. And um, last year we raised about 104,000. And this year we've tried many different things. So we have a couple of very faithful sponsors who give individual contributions of between $1,000 to $10,000. And we've also been working with uh, Lush Cosmetics. They've been absolutely phenomenal. They have given us uh, good contributions each year and what we're wanting to do now is to see how the work that we're doing there can also inspire growers to grow products that will then go back to Lush and then it's that's a closed loop again because then the contributions will all of a sudden encourage employment and then the products will be bought again by the company who needs the products anyway so and uh, they buy only organic materials for all of their products so it's super exciting what's happening and yeah, I guess uh, that's sort of about the, the end of the story. Uh, there's um, What we've tried to do this year as well is crowdsource funding through Indiegogo. So we made a small little video for, for Indiegogo, which has not gone very well. And I think that I also have not followed the protocol of how Indiegogo suggests that one does it, which is that you know once a week you send reminders to your list of correspondence, but I just felt 
you know, a lot of these are friends and family and, and people I know, and I just felt, you know, if people want to give and they get the message, the one email and they get the message and they see the movie, if they want to give, they'll give. I don't want to repeatedly for eight weeks send them another email because I, I just think it's almost harassment. And so I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. So, yeah, we've uh, just tried to um, raise funds. And most of the funds actually come from me just having conversations with people. And at the end of a conversation where people have asked, what do you do in Africa, as we've just talked about with you right now, people often just say, that's it, I'm going to give you some money. And then they pull out their checkbook and write a check for $1,000, $5,000 often. And that's how we're raising the money now. And I still have a tree sale once a year, Trees for Africa tree sale, and I take that money and I put that towards the projects too. But um, one thing we've found is that, what, what I found is that this work... I love it. It's changing the world. It's making a better place for many people. But it's hard on, on me and hard on, on the family in the sense that I spend probably 70% of my waking time thinking about Africa and how to raise funds. And I learned a big lesson this year. I, because I was focusing so much on that, when our computer crashed and our students weren't able to fill out the applications and get the applications back to us. And we lost our whole summer program because of me not paying attention to our website. I realized this is ridiculous. I've got to change this up. So what we're doing this next year is I'm going to be looking for a professional fundraiser and working that way and still connecting with people on a certain level, but um, not doing all that work myself anymore because I need to spend more time with my children and uh, more time on focusing on the farm and the school here as well. So, yeah, I think that sort of wraps it up. If someone wanted to get involved, how can they get in touch with you? I have a website. Uh, it's www.sevn-ravens.com. They can also call me. I'm happy to take any phone calls. And my phone number is 250 nine five six five if they go to the website they can see we have at the top right hand corner of the website a donate button and all those funds go through the rotary club all funds i raise i process through the rotary club the local rotary club after asking me to be a guest speaker a few times decided that they wanted to make me an honorary rotarian so they did that and then they said how else can we help you and i said if we could put funds coming through you so that uh, people can get tax receipts that would work. And so they actually can issue tax receipts for Canadians and American citizens. So all the funds go through there, and then all the books go through there. So after all the receipts each year go through, then uh, they, they do all the auditing of that. And I just feel much more comfortable with that than having to, you know, just do it all myself. And that's one way. Or if they wanted to, they could go through the Indiegogo site. On that site, we've asked for $165,000 for the 150, which would be the ultimate number to really do the job we really want to do. But they take 10%, so that's why it's 165. We've only managed to raise about $3,200 on that site now. But on with the other funds I've raised now, we're probably up to somewhere around 50 or so, and there's more coming in. I'm sure we'll achieve our goal of 100 again. But uh, if we could get up to the 150 level, that would be the absolute ideal situation. And that also then, if it doesn't cost that much, what I do with the extra money is I then put that money towards scholarships for teachers. Because when these East African teachers come to these schools for the teaching, that money all goes to the teacher and the administrator and the administration of that school. I get nothing, and it all goes towards just those teachers and also maintenance of the buildings, etc. That costs about, I think it's about 200 250 per course for the African teachers. That's a lot of money for a lot of these teachers. So usually what happens is that communities decide, we want to change our community, we want to change our school, and then the whole community sponsors a teacher to go to a school. But if I can have some extra funds available for scholarships, that's sort of what I'm, I'm aiming for. Well, thank you, Michael, for spending this time with me this morning. I was sitting here listening to your story and just looked up and realized that I've had you for much longer than we originally had planned to talk. But thank you for taking us through from your beginning and all of the different elements of how 
this story came together, the schools that you've built and how many people you're touching as a result of it, because I feel that this kind of a model needs to be replicated, not only in Africa, but also the United States and all the spaces that we as human beings wish to inhabit. So thank you for taking the time to sit with me today and share this. Fantastic. Thank you, Scott. And that was Michael Nichols of Seven Ravens Permaculture Academy and EcoForest. You can find out more about him at seven-ravens.com. There you will also find links to the Indiegogo campaign for the teacher school in Tanzania and a button to donate directly to his efforts. I've also included some pictures in the show notes for you to see of Michael and his projects, as well as embedded the fundraising video from the campaign. Michael's work reminds me of something that Jack Spierko said in my interview with Jack some time ago, that permaculture, compared to many other movements, is formed around a duocracy. We get fired up and passionate about something and then run with it and make it happen. Along the way, we use the principles to learn from our mistakes and keep refining and developing, improving ourselves and what we are doing. What was shared with us in this episode reflects that from the very beginning of Michael's story when he began collecting acorns for the squirrels through until his current work as a permaculture practitioner and farmer in Canada and also as a school builder throughout East Africa. I find what Michael is doing very inspiring because he just did it. He's an example of what's possible through the work that we're already doing and how it can have an impact on what we want to see in the world. He's self-financed initially. He had an idea and found ways to make it work. And then once he reached a point where he needed more assistance, he continued to build his networks and raise the funds needed to get things done. This wasn't an idea waiting for resources before beginning. He got started and then found what he needed to continue. In hearing Michael's story, if you were in his shoes, saw a need like this and a place where you could fill a niche, how would you take your first step forward? What would you do to bring your vision, your dream, into the world? What would you do that is unique to you that would make a difference? However you would walk down this path, your path, I would like to hear from you. I'd like to know what you are working with and what you are doing to make it happen. Together, we might even make it easier to get and keep your plans and projects moving. Email show at the permaculturepodcast.com. Call 717-827-6266. From here, I have three roundtable sessions and an interview already recorded for upcoming release, as well as two book reviews in process, and more conversations on the schedule, including Foraging with Lisa Rose, Fermenting with Sandor Katz, More Rewilding with Peter Michael Bauer, and Urban Water Catchment with Brad Lancaster. If you have questions for any of these upcoming guests, leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch with me by the usual means. If there's any way that I can assist you on your journey, give me a ring. Let me know what is going on in your life and how we can create more opportunity. Until the next time, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.